You are listening to Love, Maine Radio, hosted by Dr. Lisa Belisle and recorded at the studios of Maine Magazine in Portland. Dr. Lisa Belisle is a writer and physician who practices family medicine and acupuncture in Brunswick, Maine. Show summaries are available at lovemainradio.com. Here are some highlights from this week's program. That's why I like sailing so much, because you're always going forward. You always know that you have to keep going somewhere. The restaurant business, you have to keep growing. I think that um, ability to really explore and uh, really like use my imagination has helped me create businesses here in Maine, around Maine. So I think that that whole upbringing uh, is like a big catalyst to like why I'm doing what I'm doing now. This is Dr. Lisa Belial, and you are listening to Love Maine Radio, show number 239, Taste of Maine hearing for the first time on Sunday, April 17, 2016. Maine is not just a place to live, it is a place to make a life. Today we speak with four people who are creating successful businesses that feature the tastes of Maine. Our first guest is chef and restaurateur Harding Lee Smith, owner of The Rooms in Portland, who is expanding his presence to one of Maine's favorite ski mountains this year. Our other guest, Chris Avantaggio, John Turner, and Nate O'Leary, are co-founders of Crateful of Maine, a company that is sending the taste of Maine around the world. Thank you for joining us. Love Maine Radio is brought to you by Berlin City Honda, where the car buying experience is all about easy. After all, life is complicated enough and buying a car shouldn't be. That's why the Berlin City Honda team goes the extra mile by pre-discounting all their vehicles and focus their efforts on being open, honest, and all about getting you on the road. In fact, Berlin City recently won the 2015 Women's Choice Award, a strong testimony to their ability to deliver a different kind of car buying experience. Berlin City Honda of Portland. Easy. It's how buying a car should be. Go to BerlinCityHondaMe.com for more information. Today it is my great pleasure to bring back into the studio Harding Lee Smith, who is a chef and restaurateur who owns the rooms in Portland. The rooms include the grill room, the corner room, and the front room, as well as Boone's Fish House and Oyster Room. It's great to see you again. Well done. <laughs> yes, I know. It's a mouthful. Good it is a mouthful. Too. So I'm impressed because I thought the last time you came in, I think that you had only three rooms, but you had the fourth room, like that was what was going to happen next. Yes, I believe that's accurate. Yeah, and now you actually have in mind the fifth room. The fifth room, the mountain room. The mountain room. The seasonal place up at Sunday River. Well, you've actually had a lot going on since 2014, and not the least of which is something that people who are listening won't be able to see, and that is that you are only two-thirds of your former self. That is true, yes. You've lost a lot of weight. You've lost become about, more about fit. 90 pounds, yes. More so, fit, more well. Wellness is definitely a big part of my life now. So I want to hear about that because I think a lot of people would say, well, he has a restaurant and he likes to cook healthy food. So how did he get to this place in his life where he wasn't so fit? I think that just not paying attention to yourself and working a lot and concentrating on one thing and realizing, not realizing that's even happening, that slowly gaining weight, gaining weight, working seven days a week, just being focused on that one one thing and not worrying about yourself. It's one of the things in, in your, you send, you give us a sheet to fill out. And it, I talked about what I would say my, to myself 10 years ago is take time for yourself. And I'm starting to do much more of that now for the last couple of years. How do you think that stress actually impacted your your weight because I have patients who say, well, I eat fine, right. but I have a very stressful life and I can't lose weight. I've always dealt with stress pretty well. I don't think, I, I know that's part of, it's part of being a chef and being a restaurateur, that stress is going to be there. So I don't know if that really did. I think really eating fried rice at 2 a.m. <laughs> really did it more than anything else. So know. it's the food and the schedule that was kind of It's really the food and the you. schedule. And it, and it 
kind of speaks to, you know, because when you take time off, you're going and eating and so forth, and you want to, you don't get much time for yourself. So when you get it, you just kind of indulge and really eat all the bad things that you can do, you know, rather than eating less fried food, say, or smaller portions or something like that. So it's interesting that you're talking about taking more time for yourself and you like to sail. Mm-hmm. So anywhere on your boat, you like to, that's that's your place. Anywhere. Anywhere. I would, somebody asked me the other day, what's your favorite thing to do? I said, sail. More than skiing? I'm like, sail. Where? I mean, anywhere. It's fine. But you also like skiing. So you mm-hmm. and on this questionnaire that we gave you, you said being at Sunday River on a bluebird day. Yeah. That's the best thing. I mean, if it has to be wintertime and it has to be snowy, you might as well be outside and enjoying it in a perfect day. 32-degree day with no clouds in the sky. It's what we call bluebird with nice soft snow. is a fantastic time. I think many people worry that they need to stay busy in order to be successful. They need to actually kind of grab onto those reins really tightly, and then the weight piles on, and then, you know, they aren't taking care of themselves. You're kind of describing the opposite. You're saying in the last, well, since 2014, you've gotten more fit, you've gotten more well, mm-hmm. but your businesses are doing fine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think letting go a little bit and letting people do their jobs. I mean, obviously paying attention, but letting go, hiring good people. I mean, if you don't let them do the jobs and you're on top of them the whole time, they don't feel free to to create and do things. I think that that goes a long way. But also having a baby, he's now two and a half years old. When you're 290 pounds, it's difficult to get off the floor. So you realize you need to start doing something. And the big difference, how I can run and play with him. He still, you know, beats me every time, but (laughs) it helps a lot. It really does. Did you also find that you wanted to make sure you were, um, I guess, modeling good behavior for him? I know he's only two and a half. That's definitely true. I think I wanted to model good behavior, eating well. You know, we sit down at a table when we have our lunch and our dinner, and we sit down properly at a table. I think that's important, and not just gorging ourselves or going through fast food or something like that. Um, But also knowing that taking the time, when I say take time for myself, I mean time for my son and myself to be, you know, to do things. Um, I, I think that's really important. I think it's really important. So how I know you had a, a life transition of a personal nature, but mm-hmm. there, there, what was the point where you just said, you know, this just can't keep going on. I, I can't keep having the body that forces me to um, bring my foot up to my hand in order to tie my shoe. <laughs> yeah. I think when I – if you think about how much I've lost or approximately about 90 pounds, that's two sacks of potatoes, commercial-sized sacks of potatoes or cases of potatoes. I have a hard time lifting that above my waist onto a higher shelf. I can't imagine that I carried that around. I think that that I sort of came to that conclusion that it was difficult to get around. My legs were tired, squatting down on the floor, just kneeling down on the floor with Griffin. I had I had bad knees. My knees developed problems because of it. And it really was important to. I mean, I was always active. I still stayed active, and I was still sailing and doing things. But I wasn't able to do them with as much um, vivaciousness or as much uh, power as I like to do because I really like to go. You know, when I do things, I do it. You know, when I sail, I sail. When I ski, I ski. Um, I open a restaurant, I open a restaurant, <laughs> you know, I think, and I wasn't able to do that. I was sort of slowing down and like, didn't really care, you know, about my body and so forth. It just didn't, eh, didn't matter. You know? How do you get to that place? How do you get to a place where all of a sudden the body is just this thing that you carry around underneath your brain? I think it gets to be, you get to a point because I didn't start out, you know, gigantic, you know, I opened the front room in 2005. I was just a little bit heavier than I am now. Um, and it slowly comes on. You don't really know that it's happening. You just buy another pair of jeans, buy a little bit bigger size, don't really think about it that much. But then you get to this point where you're there, and to lose that is very difficult, you know. 
and I don't know how you get to that point. You just all of a sudden you're there. And you're like, wow. And then you start to get a little depressed about it. You're mopey. You know, you're, how do people perceive me? Kind of thing. You see, you see a picture of yourself ten years ago. And then you see a picture of yourself today, and you just, oh my goodness. Now it's the opposite. When I was picturing Old Poor Magazine that uh, Greta Ribas took, and look at that picture now. I was like, wow, that's a great shot. But then you look at the one that was in another magazine two and a half years ago, and I'm like, oh my. Look at that. I looked like a jolly Red Sox fan. <laughs> I looked like. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's interesting. I asked you how old you are, and if you don't want to tell people, then you don't have to. Um, but when I met you and saw you for the first time, I would have aged you up. Mm-hmm. I would have aged you up probably at least five years. Mm-hmm. And now I realize you're actually not that much older than I am, so I can't call you right. old. So maybe you shouldn't say how old you are <laughs> on the air after all. I'm middle-aged. No. Uh, I would definitely agree with that. I have several people, people just sitting here in the lobby today that I've known for years couldn't barely recognize me. Somebody told me the other day, well, you look so young. I don't feel that. My hair is nearly white, and you know, I, I don't feel old. I don't know. I'm 46. <laughs> I, don't feel, uh, I don't feel 46, but I never really knew what that meant. I mean, when I was... You know, younger in my in my teenage years, forty six seemed like it was ancient. You know, and now somebody in their mid fifties is you say that's the old guy. It's like eh, that's not really old at all. So I, I I do feel I feel younger. I feel more. Uh, I have great vitality. You know, I walk places with much uh, uh, more vigor, with speed, and, and you know, I just want to get there. That kind of thing. It's supposedly, oh, I got to go down and get that out of the car. All right, you know, it's totally different. It's like oh, okay, I'll get that. It's a much different way of being, it really is. When I think of people who are old, and I mean mentally old, these are often people who have decided, you know what, I've accomplished all I want to in my life. I'm good. I'm just going to keep, I don't know, showing up at the same job, or maybe I'm just going to retire. Or, but they, they're, they're kind of good. They're, mm-hmm. they're coasting. Mm-hmm. And I know people of lots of different ages who I wouldn't consider old, and in part it's because there's always there's always something else that, makes them excited and i think that's true for you absolutely you have to keep moving forward it's one of the questions that karen for that old Port magazine article asked me was about that sort of thing i said you have to keep moving forward you know it's it's it, that's why i like sailing so much because you're always going forward you always know that you have to keep going somewhere the restaurant business you have to keep growing not necessarily you have to keep growing by opening more places that's how i choose to do it sometimes but constantly keeping it fresh keeping it new and i think that's the same thing with life you have to keep going and doing things like i'm so pleased that I've lost enough weight that I feel like this is going to be a longevity thing for me. I had my son when I was 44 years old. That's relatively late in life to have a child, not the latest you could have. But when he's in his high school years and baseball playing years and so forth, I'm going to be old, so to speak. You know, So I want to make sure that I can still do that, that I can get off the ground, I can play catch, and I can hit balls to him, and I can do those sort of things, or go hiking, or go keep going sailing with him and go skiing with him during those years. It's really important to me. You know, because I always like that sort of thing, and I want him to, hopefully, if he if that's something he wants to do, to enjoy those things too, and be able to have memories of doing it with me. Did you do those sorts of things with your own father? Yes, yes. We started skiing at Sunday River when I was two, and then we started out, uh, Nordic skiing for a while, and then we switched back to downhill when I was ten. And my dad and I would go every weekend. You also were part of his restaurant business in Nagunquit, even from a very young age. Yeah. Very true. Very young. seven. Seven years old in the summertime. We'd ski in the winter, and in the summertime we'd cook. <laughs> and do you think that your son Griffin will be the same? I have no idea. 
uh, if he chooses to be, hopefully, you know, hopefully the restaurants are there for him to take over if he chooses. Um, I know that some people in his life would definitely wish that he doesn't do that. And he goes either to law school or becomes a doctor like yourself or something along those lines. Um, I have a feeling that he probably will go into it in some way. I, mean, I know that he'll work in the restaurants at some point. I mean, that'll be his summer job. That'll be what he'll do, you know, just like I did. He'll probably wash dishes and do that sort of thing. But hopefully he sees that I have a passion for it. And he, he'll. And what I wanted to do is do what he has a passion for. Not necessarily. It doesn't have to be cooking. Whatever he happens to do. And it's my job to, as a parent, to make sure I support those. When he shows interest in something, I support him in that. Not to say, okay, you have to be a cook. Or a front of the house person or whatever. I would, I would love it. But, you know. It's okay, Griffin. You can do what you want. <laughs> it's nice of you to say that. Right. Yeah, I mean, there is, I think, a, an enormous family cultural influence on on the kids, and and even when we say to them, "You can do whatever you want," there's still there's something about the milieu, you know, that Absolutely. they're raised in, and it's like, hard to avoid that. I think, and they want to they want to emulate us in a, in a sense. I mean, you look at there's lots of baseball players, for instance, that their fathers were baseball players, and and you know other other sports, same kind of thing. I don't know so much in the other fields, but I'm sure there's plenty of lawyers that follow in the footsteps of their of their parents. And I know that in the restaurant business particularly, because you usually start working at it at such a young age, if your family's in it, that you, it's what you know. It's what I knew. It's, it's what I knew. I mean, I could have done many things, I'm sure, but it's what I had a passion for. It's what I wanted to get better at. It's what I went to school for, because I, that's what I knew what to do. You know, when I graduated high school, I was like, well, that seems like it's logical. Let's do that. What is it about cooking in particular that appeals to you what do you like about that piece i'm very hands-on i'm visually stimulated i think and i don't know i wouldn't say i'm add certainly but because i can focus but i i get bored easily and i think that having visual stimulation it changes each time you create each time you play a dish it's another new way of doing it um there's lots of smells very visceral in that sense that i can i love i'm I get my memory, food memories from smells. I can walk into a kitchen, anybody's kitchen, any restaurant, and, oh, that reminds me of such and such, you know? And I just, I love that part of it. But when you, when you cook something and you make it for them and they like it and they smile, it's just completely rewarding. It's fantastic, you know? And even though it was something very simple, like you just cooked them a piece of fish, but they're like, what did you do? Salt and pepper. What? No. You know, and they don't do it at home necessarily or they think there's some magic behind it. And... There is definitely some magic behind it and so forth, but making people happy like that is just tremendously rewarding. And I also sort of like the theater of it all. I've always, I was taken to the theater a lot when I was young, but the sort of the fact that, you know, at five o'clock, the curtain goes up and you're on stage and you're creating sort of some, some new reality for people to, to get out of their daily lives and out of their daily routine, you know, make sort of give them something unique. So this this um, love of newness and the stage, does that ever conflict with people's um, desire for the familiar, where they'll come to the rooms and they'll go to the corner room and they'll want their same favorite pasta dish um, every Wednesday at noontime? That does happen a lot. We have people that we've t- had some things that we've taken off the menu at the front room, front room in particular because it's such a neighborhood spot and a comfort food spot. We take something off the menu and people are like, where did that go? And you either put it back on or you hopefully they'll appreciate the new dish or something like that. It does, but we've also sort of built our restaurants to have a core menu and a core thing that is familiar and even familial that people keep coming back for. By innovation and not necessarily innovation, but by keeping it fresh is 
keeping new products on, new specials, and whether you, you know, keeping the fresh paint on the walls and that sort of thing is more what I mean by that, I think. Well, I know that I enjoy when I, because I work here in the old port a few days a week, and so I will often go over to the corner room or to the front room, which is, um, or I mean the grill room, which is right across the street from where I work. And so I really like the salad, and I'll usually have the white fish if it's uh, available on top. But I actually like the fact that you have rotating salads, that mm-hmm. you have whatever is available in the market right. that day. Yeah, we work with a lot of farmers, even this time of year. You know, they have the root vegetables stored up and carrots and different things like that. And our, all of our chefs are very passionate about working with these farmers, so they take those things that they get and they try to create them into new, into new things. So how does that look in March versus in July? I would think that in March you're doing some very different sorts of produce. Very different things. The best time really is in October and September. That's our favorite. That's most every chef you talk to I think would probably say that. That's when you have wild mushrooms coming in. All the bounty is come. The tomatoes are coming in in droves. All these great things that they've been growing all summer are now available to you. In March, you're really in still into root vegetables you're into maybe some greenhouse lettuces and things like that. It looks completely different. It really does. And even, you know, in Maine, even in, G- in July, you're starting to get some things. But in, in June, you're not getting much from it at all, unless people have the gardens. But we have, we use a lot of people also that are cultivating mushrooms. So we get a lot of local mushrooms. And right now it's scallop season. So you're using more of the protein aspect of it. And wintry greens, you know, like kales and things like that, stuff that does well in greenhouses over the winter time. That's really more what we're using now. Has it gotten easier to incorporate some of these foods that grow in the winter greenhouses now that people are more uh, open to eating kale, for example? Definitely. People are more open to eating it, and it's more available to us. I mean, there's more than one farmer now, and they're realizing there's a big market for it. Once people, you know, chefs and consumers get over the fact that an apple shouldn't necessarily be perfectly round and red, or a carrot is not necessarily orange and straight, it's much easier to use these kinds of products. We had some guests this summer on the, at Boone's on the patio, and the dish came back because we were using multicolored farm carrots. They're heirloom carrots. The carrots didn't start out as orange necessarily. They were purple and white, and she sent it back because she said they were potatoes. So very rarely do you go to the dining room and say that's something to a guest, but I went to the, and I said, ma'am, I understand you think these are potatoes. Well, carrots are orange. I said, well, not all carrots are orange. These ones happen to be purple and white. But I promise you that these are carrots. I promise I wouldn't give you potatoes as carrots. It's fine. And then she ate them all and loved them. But that sometimes getting over that part of it, realizing the heirloom is the original thing and these things haven't been modified. This is really healthy, wonderful food that's originally as it was appearing. And it is, it's much easier now than it was, certainly. But it's still an education process for all of us, for the consumer and the chefs. Is it also um, an education process when it comes to the seasonality of food and the availability of food? Because we are known as, and I'm not sure I like this word, but foodie. We are considered to be a foodie town and state. Okay, so neither one of us like this word, but let's just pretend that we're okay with it for the purpose of discussion. So people come to this town which loves food, Mm -hmm. and they want to eat good food Mm -hmm. at the rooms in February. But some of the stuff that they might want to eat is not available in Maine. Is there ever a conflict there? Um, Well, we do have the miracle of the jet airplane. So you still can get naturally raised produce and organic produce and get stuff here that's beautifully fresh. There's great companies that are doing so. There are greenhouses in Maine. Um, We have now there's tomatoes available. You, You know, they're doing great things in New Gloucester with hydroponics growing tomatoes. So we do offer because 
particularly at Boone's, it's more of a tourist-driven sort of place. If you can't get a tomato on your burger, people don't understand why. The other restaurants we don't, but at, at Boone's we do because we have the tourists. So we do utilize the jet airplane and hydroponic and greenhouses and things like that. Um, I, I think that people are comfortable with the fact that we're using celery root and parsnips and rutabaga and things like that. Those are our vegetables that we're using right now as opposed to green beans because green beans aren't grown here right now. Um, I think that, that we've come a long way from that, but I don't have a... We Obviously in Maine, we can't be 100% out of the ground in the wintertime. It's not possible. You know, I mean, there are others, there are people who are trying to do that with, you know, different levels of success. I think that uh, you have to be aware of, as long as you know that your product is quality and you know where it's coming from, that it's okay if it came not necessarily from right here at this time of year. In the summertime, we're using almost all of that. You know, all of our carrots, all of our onions, all of those things are grown locally. I want to ask you about mushrooms because I'm intrigued by them. This is something that when I was growing up, I'm not actually, I'm not sure how many children of any sort like mushrooms when they're growing up. I don't think any. And probably because... I get I've gotten them spit out at me a couple times. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think I grew up with the white button mushrooms. Mm-hmm. Probably in many cases, I grew up with canned mushrooms. And my mom... They're I known as champignons. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And my mom would, she would try a few times, but then, then she was just like, you know what? I'll just feed them to your father. Mm-hmm. But I've actually grown to like mushrooms over mm-hmm. time. And in Maine, we have really some great access to lots of different types of essentially fungus, mm-hmm. right? Absolutely. What has been your experience with introducing these into the menus at the rooms? Extremely popular. The, the, we had a very bad mushroom season last year, unfortunately. So we didn't have as the great volume of mushrooms that we had the previous two or three years. The previous two or three years, we had mushroom halls that were unbelievable. And in the woods in particular, just out there with big giant you know one of my chef sean he found i think a 45 pound hand of the woods mushroom um we have uh great success with them you know we have foragers that come to us there's different laws now governing them by the state some people got sick some people that were not real foragers or mycologists didn't really know what they were picking and there's a couple mushrooms out there that have parasites that if you don't know what you're getting you might be eating the wrong mushroom they look very similar to the others but just slightly different so that's better now because you have to be a licensed mycologist. You have to be. You have to verify that you know that these are correct mushrooms. So now once we have that and we have good people bringing them to us, the customers love it. I mean, I like black trumpet mushrooms are my favorite thing. It's just tremendous. And also with the miracle of the jet airplane, there's great people that are bringing things in at reasonable prices now from Oregon and so forth, where there's like the mushroom capital of the world. You know, so many forest fires. That's where a lot of mushrooms grow out of, out of that morels in particular. But we also have great people uh, cultivating mushrooms now. Relatively easy to do. They grow them on logs and garages and greenhouses and different things like that. You know, and some of them are they're sort of mimics of wild mushrooms, and they're fantastic. They're uniform. They're really, really tasty. You can use them for all sorts of different things. So I, I think mushrooms have come a long, long way. I, would anybody 10 years ago have been excited about a mushroom, like a wild mushroom? Probably not. But now I think they almost expect it. I mean, you can go to Whole Foods and... I don't know how they get away with keeping them because they don't think they sell that many of them, but they're almost always available. At least one variety of a wild mushroom is there. Okay. Well, I, I like the idea that here in Maine we actually have some things that really have um, very 
high quality health properties. I mean, chaga is one of these um, varieties of fungus, which is known to be good for promoting health along <laughs> with... I don't know about that one. Well, it is, it's a fungus. It's not exactly like reishi. It grows off the side of a tree, and we have people who are cultivating chaga. But, okay. you know, if I'm we go to... Or actually, they're foraging for chaga. But if we go to a... Um, just talking about blueberries here in Maine, we have blueberries, which have very high antioxidant mm-hmm. levels. You know, we have sea vegetables that people are either cultivating or just foraging. There's a whole new company that's just dropped off at our door there doing great things with the sea vegetables. So what I love about this is that these essentially are plants that are taking the energy of our state and they're kind of putting them into packaging them into this form mm-hmm. that is readily available to mm-hmm. us for our health. And mm-hmm. it sounds like you're using a lot of this stuff yeah, in your restaurants. Yeah, absolutely. There's a, there's a, I think the food industry, and not just for, you know, what should we say, tomatoes or lettuces or things like that, but the other things that are people are doing now is just amazing. I was reading in the paper the other day about lobster bodies or lobster shells being used for a treatment. I forget what it was for. But it was Christosin, I believe, is the compound that comes out of it that they were previously using shrimp shells and so forth. We have all these leftover lobster shells all the time, and they just realized that they can do this. They're actually shipping them to Iceland to extract the the product, but it's tremendously life life invigorating stuff. Amazing. Last night, I think I watched four episodes of Chopped with my twenty <laughs> year old daughter, and I and actually both of my child, my daughters specifically, my fifteen year old and my twenty year old love love that show in particular, but cooking shows in general. Mm-hmm. And there is this whole thing I think within that generation and the sort of the generations around it right. around cooking but when you started this it wasn't it wasn't like no the chopped generation definitely not when i first started cooking there was no cooking show i mean julia child was our cooking show you know that was my who i grew up watching was julia child and jacques pepin i mean actually both of them ended up being uh one credit professors for me i assisted julia at boston university it was amazing and those were that was the celebrity then it was from pbs and it wasn't uh food network and so forth and now it's everywhere I mean, we really, as much as a lot of people probably wouldn't admit this, we owe Emerald Lagasse a huge debt because would we be eating quail or we probably would have evolved to this point. At some point, we would have gotten there. But all these different things that he introduced, I mean, you can call him a hack and he was just putting on an entertaining show. He's a great chef. If you eat his restaurants, it's tremendous. But he was cooking, you know, he didn't care how he was accomplishing it. He was just entertaining the people. And he did that. And he brought food culture right into people's living rooms, into middle-class America, not just foodies and that sort of thing, but to everybody. And he started that whole explosion of, of the Food Network and that sort of thing. We all owe him a great debt. I mean, we could say whatever we want about him and even Anthony Bourdain, who once used to disparage him now, says, I was wrong. <laughs> well, I, I, what I like about this is that um, it's, gotten, it's gotten people interested in food again, mm-hmm. in cooking. I mean, they'll go to a good restaurant. They'll also cook for themselves. Now they know what an eggplant is. Now mm-hmm. they know how to actually cut a uh, hen of the woods mushroom. Mm-hmm. So that's what I really like about this. And hopefully people will tear themselves away from the television and actually go into the kitchen and, right. and do some of this stuff. I think a lot of people are. I mean, if you look at the, the kind of foods that they're selling at Whole Foods, even Hannaford has, has to up their game tremendously in the, in the local markets as well and Rosemont and all of those sorts of things. People are buying the food, so they must be cooking it. I mean, I would certainly assume they are the propagation of Williams Sonoma and the other cooking stores and so forth. It's kind of a, and in this town in particular, chefs are, you know, they're somewhat celebrities. I mean, a lot of the kitchens that you see there opening in restaurants today are all open because people want to see you cook. 
we have a dining bar at all the restaurants except for the front room where you can sit and watch people cook and people love it. They really are into it because they understand like, oh, I wonder if that's what they were doing there. You know, because you, you see little techniques from the TV shows that you see because not all cooking shows now are just, you know, so most of them now seem to be competitions, but they were a few years ago and even some still today where they're actually in the kitchen of a chef. So you're seeing, you know, the kitchen equipment and the neat stuff like that. You know, I, like when I was a kid seeing kitchen equipment in the store, I was like, oh, we're at a kitchen store. This is really neat. <laughs> It's actually one of my favorite kind of stores too. I really, really yeah, like I, I probably have way more kitchen equipment than I ever could use, but but it's you know it's a guilty pleasure, I mm-hmm. guess. Yeah. Just don't ever buy the asparagus peeler. Okay. Oh yeah, no, that doesn't make a lot of sense to me either. So you have, as we said at the beginning of the show, the four rooms. Mm-hmm. Um, Boone's was the most recent one, but Boone's, you have yes. this other one that's opening the Mountain Room at the Peak Lodge up at Sunday River. Mm-hmm. This will be next winter. It'll be open for the winter of sixteen seventeen. so hopefully in December. We should be starting uh, construction or renovation, so to speak, in June. Or if the snow keeps staying away, probably May. And what can people expect from the Mountain Room? Kind of a greatest hits. It's going to have a great big deck overlooking the valley. Uh, we have fire pits all over the place. There'll be a uh, wood-burning fire with couches surrounding it on the inside. It's kind of a apres ski during the ski day. There'll be a full-service bar with a big seat open kitchen and wood-burning grill, cooking burgers and steaks and things like that. We'll have fondue, like you kick back in a, in a Adirondack chair, dipping fondue, drinking a beer, or a hot toddy or mulled wine, that sort of thing. Basically, at full, there'll be slippers for you so you can take your boots off, leave your slipper, leave your boots over to the side, yellow bean slippers to walk around in. Um, it's a really sort of unique experience. Sort of the idea that the, the president of Sunday River and I have come up with is sort of that Swiss sort of feel to it, where you go out on the deck and you get a blanket given to you. So you sit there, and you can have a couple of pops, go back, get back in your skis, ski down. Or if you don't want to ski down, we have uh, the gondola right there, so you can take the gondola down. It's uh, going to be very unique. We actually hope to attract some people just coming up on their own and that aren't necessarily skiing, come up in the gondola, walk over, and have a nice dinner as well, or lunch. How about your Full Plates, Full Potential fundraiser? I believe you've done this two years now? Three years. Three years now. This is our, we had our third annual this New Year's Eve. We have a charity gala at Boone's in the upstairs function area every year. This year we packed the house. We had 225 people up there at midnight. It was really tremendous. We raised a lot of money for Full Plates, Full Potential, and the Good Shepherd's Food Bank. They're sort of in together, but we wanted to make sure we brought a lot of attention to the, to the food bank, which is really near and dear to our hearts as chefs. And we did really well. It was tremendous. It's become sort of an annual thing, which we were trying to get it to be. I mean, it is an annual thing, but it's become kind of that thing. Like, we were sold out well in advance this year, and we hope the same thing for the next, you know, 20, 30 years, whatever it is, however long it should be. Boone has been there well over 100 years now, so who knows? (laughs) Well, we went, and we really enjoyed it. We were upstairs. There were people dancing. There were downstairs. The the place was packed, absolutely packed. packed. We couldn't actually get a place to sit and have dinner because we called too late. So we couldn't. We only got to go upstairs. But the people were there. They were loving it. So this next year, it'll be your fourth year, and you'll go on ad infinitum. Yes. We hope to keep going, keep an annual event, and always – it's a unique thing that we're doing, I think, because we're taking a night which is typically a night that you just try to make as much as you can. And we're turning this into a night where we can bring focus to a, to a cause. I don't know that we'll always stick with the same charity. I would assume that we will, um, or something along the same goal of ending childhood hunger in some way. The By using it on a night that's usually a typically very busy night, which is always for us as well, 
it brings that much more awareness because people are focused on that on a night when they're all going to be going out and so forth. They're going to know that they're going out for a reason. We call it party with a purpose, trying to get people to realize that they can, they're doing something by purchasing this ticket. And, you know, if they we did a great auction this year too, a lot of different, not auction, but a, a raffle where lots of good things were given away and that money went to the charity. So it was really, it's nice. Good thing to do. So you have a lot going on. What are you most excited about? What am I most excited about? Well, I got my son to go down on skis. He's two and a half years old, and he skied down the mountain. Well, not down the mountain. He skied down the bunny slope by himself and loved it with a giant smile on his face. And when I caught him, he said, again. So I think I'm probably most excited about that. It's actually joking me up a bit right now. I'm probably most excited about that. I'm very excited, of course, about the mountain room. I'm thrilled to death. It's like a dream come true, having a seasonal place up at a place that I'm just passionate. I'm a... You either are a sugar loafer or you're a Sunday River person if you're if you grew up in Maine. And I'm a Sunday River person. Love sugar loaf as well, but I've Sunday River is like home to me. We call it home when we go. And I'm just really excited about that as well. And the prospect of my son being able to grow up in a skiing kind of culture and maybe becoming a championship skier, who knows? Instead of a chef. Uh, but him being able to grow up in that thing and have a have a reason to go there and really know it as a community because it's such a beautiful it's such a beautiful place the community of newry and bethel and just sunny river in general and the owners of the mountain the Boeing corporation are just such wonderful friendly people i'm really hope happy for him to be able to grow up at least some of the time in that environment and i'm really looking forward to summer and sailing too well i hope that summer comes early for us this it looks year. like it outside it's looking pretty sunny outside right yeah, now absolutely and then you can open up your deck at Boone's Fish House and mm-hmm. people can go down there and watch start eating the, oysters start eating oysters watch the ships coming in mm-hmm. we've been speaking with Harding Lee Smith he is a chef and restaurateur who owns the rooms in Portland which include the grill room the corner room and the front room as well as Boone's Fish House and oyster room and also the upcoming mountain room which will be at Sunday River it's been a pleasure to talk to you again today thank Do you for thank coming you. in absolutely Experience chef and owner Harding Lee Smith's newest hit restaurant, Boone's Fish House and Oyster Room, Maine seafood at its finest. Joining sister restaurants, The Front Room, The Grill Room, and The Corner Room, this newly renovated two-story restaurant at 86 Commercial Street on Custom House Wharf overlooks scenic Portland Harbor. Watch Lobstermen bring in the daily catch as you enjoy baked stuffed lobster, raw bar, and wood-fired flatbreads. For more information, visit theroomsportland.com. It's not often that I have the opportunity to interview um, a passel of individuals, truly, um, all at the same time. Today we have three people in our studio, and I feel pretty lucky about that, actually. We have Chris Avantaggio, John Turner, and Nate O'Leary, who are the owners of Crateful of Maine. Chris Avantaggio is an advertising art director slash associate of creative director and the founder and creative director of the Maine lifestyle brand Live Maine. John Turner is the founder of Traps Eyewear. He repurposes oak lobster traps to make sunglasses, cufflinks, tie bars, and authentic accessories with a nod to the past. And Nathan O'Leary is the founder of Mainly SEO, a digital marketing firm specializing in SEO, social media, and e-commerce website design for small businesses. So you guys are just like a crate full of talent across the microphone <laughs> from me today. Thanks for coming in. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. So obviously Maine is important to each of you. You each have your own um, links to the state. I guess, John, I'll start with you. You have this whole Harpswell connection. Tell me about that. Yeah, definitely. I was born in Portland and grew up on the coast of Harpswell and um, definitely just really had a great like coastal upbringing. Um, 
making forts on the beach, looking for lobsters, crabbing, like those are all things that I definitely got to do. And I think that um, ability to really explore and uh, really like use my imagination has helped me create businesses here in Maine, around Maine. So I think that that whole upbringing uh, is like a big catalyst to like why I'm doing what I'm doing now. So when you say the beach, you mean Popham? Yeah, definitely Popham was a great place, but you know, just the rocky coastline in front of my house, that was definitely where I spent a lot of my time. A lot of time, Ragged Island, um, just islands on off the coast of Harpswell. And thus I'm assuming that the, the oak lobster traps became somewhat of a draw for you because of the stuff that you used to build when you were younger? Yeah, definitely. I just, uh, I've always been into repurposing salvaged materials. And the original idea was to take old wired frames and melt them down and to make metal sunglasses. But uh, that material is not very malleable. And I saw the oak lobster traps, and I really like the history uh, behind the traps. The traps I'm using now to make lobster traps are actually made by the lobstermen who fished them. And then his son fished them as well. So it's this really cool progression of the material. Uh, you know, great story behind every single pair of glasses. They're all different. They're all different because of you know the environment that they were put in. Um, so each time they like banged up against the boat or encountered frigid water, it changes the grain pattern. So each pair is, is definitely significantly different, and each pair tells a story. So yeah, you know the whole hard soil upbringing really has like created and honed my like skills and talents into what I'm doing today. Chris. You tell me that you're also a saltwater guy. You also <laughs> like the ocean. Yeah. And and you're the, you're the live Maine guy. So when we see the shirts that say live Maine, run Maine, eat Maine, you're that guy. Yep. Maine is really important to you. Yeah, I love Maine. Um, I grew up here. I grew up in Damariscotta. And uh, similar to John, I, I spent a lot of time on the water growing up, fishing with my brothers and um, down in the South Bristol area. Uh, we had some, my, my mom's, father was a, a lobsterman. Um, I never met him, but it's in our family heritage. Um, so there's cool, there's a, that connection to the ocean there. Um, it's just, I feel like a, a part of who I am. Um, I, I have a lot of strong connections with the state and, and love celebrating all the great things that there are to do here. That brand has been pretty successful over the years. Yeah, every year it, um, it gets a little stronger, I guess. Um, it's something that I started about Oh, five or six years ago, and it it, it kind of just started on a whim, really. It was um, a, a single t-shirt design I put together um, for a bunch of friends, um, and, and myself, we would go to the Maine Brewers Festival every year, and uh, one year they asked me to put a design together, and the first one that came out was Beer Me, and it, <laughs> there was a lot of uh, attention drawn to it, and I, I saw an opportunity to, to really expand it and create a, a lifestyle brand for Maine, and from there, it's just kind of grown through friends and family supporting it. Nate, you're the sole freshwater holdout. You are a big mm -hmm. fan of Sebago Lake, but you still love Maine. Why is that? Um, just the culture, the diversity here, uh, all four seasons. I'm a big fan of skiing and, you know, enjoying the summers on Sebago Lake. Um, fall is, you know, one of my favorite seasons. So just being able to experience all four seasons seasons of Maine and um, you know the people here and how happy everybody is and you know just kind of enjoy Maine and everything that it brings to the to the table I guess. How did you get interested in SEO work and for people who are listening who don't really know what that is describe it a little bit. Sure 
excuse me, so uh, SEO stands for uh, search engine optimization. And when you go to Google and you put in a search term, um, you know, Google has an algorithm with 200 different factors that determine what website results you're gonna get. Um, and I try to manipulate that as best as I can to favor our own websites or our clients' websites to rank higher in, in Google. So if you're looking for uh, a steakhouse in Portland uh, or you know, made in Maine gifts, uh, we try to optimize websites to show up for those search terms. So it sounds like each of you are working together on this um, new venture called Crateful of Maine, and it sounds like each of you has your own individual talents that you have been able to weave into this. Who came up with this idea originally? <laughs> I think it was just us having a beer. Um, it comes just, back to the beer again, doesn't yeah. it? <laughs> well, there's such a strong beer culture here. Yeah, so. there's so many good ones. Yeah, um, it was an idea that I think Nate had originally uh, suggested to John and I saying, you know, I think there's a, an opportunity to, to create a, a business or a service where we can highlight a lot of these amazing main uh, brands and, and small companies that make these really great products and, and kind of showcase that and get it in front of a larger audience. And from there, we we started to think about it a little more and, and, and knew that um, branding would be crucial and, and really getting it right and making it feel like a really great product that, that people would be drawn to. So um, we thought about it for a while and tossed around some ideas. And um, after a couple sort of bad names, we, uh, we, we came up with Crateful and the whole concept of putting it together in a, in a craft cardboard box screen printed to look like an old lobster crate just seemed like a really fun concept to us and uh, we I think we pitched it around to a few friends and and uh, other people and just kind of got some feedback first but it, it seemed like a good direction to go in. So what types of things are in your crate full of Maine? Uh, we definitely offer a wide range of items in our crates and we're, right now we're really building out the different themes in our crates so you know, we have a baby crate, uh, we have our evergreen crate, which was the first initial launch of the product, which was what was available for Christmas. Uh, we have a ladies crate and a gentleman's crate. Uh, we're working on a brunch crate. So we're really looking to cover every aspect of the great products that are made in Maine. We're also looking to make sure that we have, you know, really great themes for both men and women. Um, but we really look for genuine main makers who are doing something original and uh, really, you know, showing off their craftsmanship. Um, we've got to work with awesome makers here in the state already, and we keep we hope to keep you know working with many more. Uh, there's so many people making great things here in Maine. Uh, I recently just put a quick uh, Facebook post on our Facebook wall asking people to suggest main makers. And we had, you know, 50 or I think maybe 50 comments of people just yeah. suggesting their friends and friends of friends. So, I mean, you know, the, the products range though from everything from like handmade soaps to leather goods, uh, small handbags, uh, wood products. I mean, it's, it's a range of manufacturing. I mean, even like uh, baby blankets and uh, onesies, it's, it's all stuff that's made here in Maine by sometimes just one person. It's a small business looking to get exposure and, and just trying to grow like everyone else. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we have 
you know, products from Zutility Tools, which is a precision manufacturing facility here in, you know, Portland that are doing, you know, large volumes. Um, and then we have single makers that are baking us cookies, you know, one by one. So it's definitely a vast range of, of manufacturing abilities, production abilities, and just product. So I'm interested in how that works. If you have, a, presumably you have a variety of things to choose from, how do you I guess, bring in the materials that you need in order to have them available for your crates to send out to people in a timely fashion, because that seems to be what people want. When they order it, they want it yesterday. Yeah. Inventory management is obviously a big portion of this business. And so far, we've really pushed crates out for finite dates. So whether it be you know, a Christmas type deal or a Valentine's type deal. So that really puts uh, you know, a time frame on when people should be ordering these. Um, but now we are getting into more products such as the ladies' crate and the gentlemen's crate that are just you know standalone products that people can order at any time. Uh, but it's really just creating a great relationship between us and the people that make these products uh, to ensure that there is this communication that when we do need product that you know we can source that product and get it to the the end user as soon as possible. Nate, what's your favorite crate? Uh, <clears throat> probably just the evergreen crate, the first one that we came out with. Uh, we packed, I think, 17 items into that crate, um, tried to add as much value as we could to that um, in time for Christmas. We launched it on Black Friday, so there was a lot of noise, uh, but we were able to cut through that with some smart marketing uh, and just getting the word out there, obviously, through social media and, and word of mouth. Uh, so that was extremely successful. And to John's point, like we initially went to many of those makers and just asked them for a certain quantity. And then within the first couple of days, we were already past that and needed to re-up like almost two or three times. Um, and they were all great and able to get us the product uh, very quickly. So that was awesome that they were able to move fast for us. Chris, you work with VIA mm -hmm. and um, your job is, is essentially, well, I guess branding, marketing, you're, you're the actual, you're an art director, you're an associative creative director. So this is your yes. field. What have you seen with, when it comes to the brand of Maine? What have you seen as far as trends over the last, say, five years? Uh, well, that's a great question. I, I would say that things are becoming much more independent and authentic. So there's a large, I mean, Maine as a state has, has this kind of mystique around it. I, I don't know. It, people are drawn to it and... I think they really appreciate the the quality and craftsmanship of things now. Um, so I think branding is really, really important when it comes to a product or a, a company and putting, you know, your best foot forward and making sure that you're uh, creating authentic things and, and uh, you know, having a, a good design sense. Those are all strong qualities. Well, talk to me about authentic. I don't know which one of you would like to tackle this word, but it seems to be something that we, we hear a lot more. Why, why is being authentic so important? What does it really mean? I mean, to me, this like authenticity of Maine, all these, you know, these companies are making great Maine goods and they want to give someone an authentic experience of Maine or a flashback of Maine. It's funny that so many people have some kind of connection to Maine, whether they were here for camp one year or whether they have a camp here or whether they met a friend in Maine. There's so many different elements or connections to Maine. And I think that to create an authentic product, 
when that person holds that product or experiences that product, they're coming back to Maine in their mind. They're remembering an experience they had here in Maine. Um, I mean, that's kind of what I think about when I think about authentic or authentic product, Maine products. What about you, Nate? You do SEO work, so you know that you're you're trying to make sure that people find the actual authentic thing that you are offering. What types of words and phrases and um, what types of things are people searching for when they're looking for authentic? Yeah, uh, I mean, just made in Maine, obviously, is a big one that comes to mind. Um, you know, there's a variety of keywords uh, that people search for, and many times they're unique to them because they're searching what comes to mind to them. So it's it's very diverse. Um, and, you know, just to their point, again, the story behind all of these products is really what I think makes them authentic. So that's not something that you can easily uh, replicate or duplicate. So the story behind each one of the products we try to tell uh, as best as we can um, for each one of the makers that we include in the crate. Yeah, I think that's a great piece uh, of uh, who a brand is, I think. And uh, there, I mean, I think we've done a great job with just the, the relationships we've already established. Each each brand has such unique stories from like Alana Marie's big bag clutches to, uh, you know, like Jess's soap company. There's, there's so many unique uh, businesses out there that have these really cool stories of how they started. I mean, John, for example, with his straps eyewear, it's, I mean, all these are kind of, I think all that adds to authenticity. So it's not that you can actually put in a search engine authentic Maine or that even people would do that in the first place. They're, they're looking for something more specific that will then lead them to these authentic products. Yeah, I think so, for sure. Um, yeah. Chris, you went to school in Boulder, and you were a snowboarder. You've, you've transitioned from this very active outdoor self mm-hmm. into, I would say, probably more cerebral and <laughs> uh, more inside, at the very least. Yeah. And now you've become an entrepreneur. So describe the various aspects of your personality that are kind of contributing to where you are sitting today. Oh, wow. Okay. So I'm not very good at sitting still. So even if I am at my desk, I'm up like every hour walking around anyway. I, I think uh, the transition from snowboarding into advertising into entrepreneurship all stems from having a lot of passion for things and and really stems in creativity. So when I was snowboarding, it, it was, uh, you know, trying to pick a line through the park and, and set up a, a, a run for tricks or uh, thinking about my next move on a jump. That transitioned into, um, okay, now we're, now we're coming up with ideas for brands and businesses that, uh, you know, it's a creative innovation, coming up with these new ways to to market a product, and then uh, and then from there, getting into just fun ideas or, or a new way to, to start a business. So I, it, I guess it all stems from, um, I don't know, just having a passion for something. And with me, that, that you know, started with snowboarding I, and kind of got into Maine, because it's a part of who I am, where I came from. And when I was in Colorado, I always missed the ocean. I wasn't sure when I would come back to me, and I knew I would want to. Um, but uh, I met a girl back on the East Coast that's now my, my wife, and uh, that definitely drew, drew me back. 
Um, but yeah, I, I guess I just. Uh, I'd probably say not wanting to settle <laughs> yeah. and, always, and always wanting to improve. I mean, I feel like we're all like that. We always yeah. want to do better and improve on things. So, yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Well, now we know about Chris's snowboarding and we know about John's building forts on the beach. What's your backstory? Um, wow, uh, I've got a pretty diverse background. Um, I've done everything from race cars across the country and the Gumball 3000 and the Players Run to day trading stocks and building websites and uh, when I was like 14 and 15 years old. so. Uh, I've always been drawn to technology. Um, I saw the evolution of cell phones because one of my first jobs was working in a cell phone store. So I saw everything from the bag phones all the way to the iPhone. And then, uh, you know, just, you know, growing a business online has come somewhat naturally to me. Um, so that's kind of where our skill sets kind of work together. Um, Chris being the, the branding expert and John having a great connection to a lot of these main makers. Um, and then my background with marketing and the website. So we were able to really come together and, and launch this thing uh, rather quickly. We only had literally like three or four weeks to get this thing off the ground when we really decided that we were gonna do this. We had sat on the idea for a while, uh, almost six months, uh, just to figure out if we had the time or if this is something that we wanted to pursue. And then we kind of came together and we're like, all right, let's do this. And then we set Black Friday as that launch date. and. I literally didn't even go to my family Thanksgiving dinner because I was building the website that weekend. <laughs> so so what was the spark? Why did you all of a sudden, after sitting on it for so long, why did you all of a sudden say, oh, we have to do this now? I guess the timing was right. And I mean, obviously the se- like the time of the season helped. You know, the holidays were coming, Black Friday. Uh, we thought if you know people were going to be really into this product, that was a good time to launch it out there. Um, and it, it, we had great validation. We had, a, like Nate said, you know, we ordered a certain amount of product from these makers originally, and I think we had to reorder four or five times. So we saw that this was a good concept, and now we're building out these different themes, and we're excited to, you know, see where this company is in a year or five years from now. As I'm interviewing the three of you. John, I'm noticing that you're you're looking around, you're looking out the window. It's like your path, your creative pathways are like constantly like kind of um, I don't know exercising themselves. And I know that Chris has described sort of the same thing, and so have you, um, Nate. So what's that like for the three of you to like try to get all your creative pathways to kind of connect, I guess, and move this business forward? I mean, you know, obviously we all have diverse backgrounds, but they're all fitting backgrounds to make a successful business. Like Chris, I grew up skateboarding and snowboarding. um, And just going back to that point, like, you know, skateboarding and snowboarding is like the ultimate freedom. You know, no one's telling you what to do. You're really, like Chris said, choosing a line, choosing whatever you want to do. And I think that has helped me uh, develop businesses because I really feel like passionate about you know doing my own thing and creating out a niche and also you know skateboarding and snowboarding I really learned about like product collaboration and brands working with other brands that you're like this juxtaposition of these two brands like make no sense but then it makes sense somehow so I really draw a lot of inspiration from from that background for sure uh, but going back to you know us all having different you know 
not necessarily passions, but skill sets. It just it all just makes sense. It like works. It works super well as far as the business that we're looking to create. Uh, you know, I have these good relationships with these makers. You know, Chris is an awesome you know art director. If we need something as far as branding goes, he's done it in like 15 minutes after we've asked him to do it. So like, we're so lucky to be able to streamline that process, and especially Chris's like knowledge. And you know, he's been shipping products for a long time. He's been doing packaging for a long time. Nate's been doing websites for a long time and SEO for a long time. When this guy's doing SEO before like SEO was even around, so it all just it works. Yeah, we definitely all have our own strengths, and I think collectively. It's an awesome team. So we've been working hard to kind of chisel out those roles and figure out how we can be more efficient and, um, and more effective with our time because we don't have a lot of it, all having other things going on right now. Um, so you know, we're excited when we do get the opportunity to get together and, and kind of carve out those tasks. Um, but we're also excited for what this project holds for, for the state and, and what it can do for all these people that are involved with it. At the end of the day, we want to help all these other businesses grow and get them new exposure. How can people find out about Crateful of Maine and each of you as individuals in your in your own pursuits? Yeah, just uh, visit CratefulofMaine.com. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Um, you can sign up for our newsletter. We feature different main makers um, that we're going to be highlighting in the boxes or the crates. And, and also Crateful of Maine will provide some sort of information on why each of you were interested in doing this? Yeah, on the, uh, on the website there's a, uh, an about section that gives a little bit of our background and, and how the project started. And we've been fortunate to have some great press as well, so there's links to articles in the Press Herald or um, we were featured on Fox, uh, Good Morning Maine and things like that. Well, I give you all a lot of credit. It sounds like in addition to having jobs that you already did and having lives that you already had, you've now brought together all of these all of these creative um, energies and your own strengths, and you're really bringing something into Maine that will be good for not only your organization but also the rest of the state. So thank you for doing that. We've been speaking with Chris Avantaggio, John Turner, and Nate O'Leary, who are the owners of Crateful of Maine. I encourage you to go to their website and find out more about these wonderful products that they're offering and hopefully put in an order. Thanks for coming in. You can use the coupon code SAVE10 to save 10% off your order. Excellent. Thanks so much for coming in. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thanks. You have been listening to Love Maine Radio, show number 239, Taste of Maine. Our guests have included Harding Lee Smith, Chris Avantaggio, John Turner, and Nathan O'Leary. For more information on our guests and extended interviews, visit lovemainradio.com. Love Main Radio is downloadable for free on iTunes. For a preview of each week's show, sign up for our e-newsletter and like our Love Main Radio Facebook page. Follow me on Twitter as Dr. Lisa and see my running travel, food, and wellness photos as Bountiful One on Instagram. We love to hear from you, so please let us know what you think of Love Main Radio. We welcome your suggestions for future shows. Also, let our sponsors know that you have heard about them here. We are privileged that they enable us to bring Love Main Radio to you each week. This is Dr. Lisa Belayo. I hope that you have enjoyed our Taste of Maine show. Thank you for allowing me to be a part of your day. May you have a bountiful life. Love Maine Radio is made possible with the support of Berlin City Honda, The Rooms by Harding Lee Smith, Maine Magazine, 
Portland Art Gallery and Art Collector Maine. Audio production and original music have been provided by Spencer Albee. Our editorial producer is Kelly Chase. Our assistant producer is Shelby Wasson. Our community development manager is Casey Lovejoy. And our executive producers are Kevin Thomas, Susan Grisanti, and Dr. Lisa Belisle. For more information on our host's production team, Maine Magazine, or any of the guests featured here today, please visit us at lovemainradio.com.